The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Dr. Julius Kim. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. We continue our series bringing devotions from Isaiah. So today we'll be reading from Isaiah 49. I can't read the entire chapter due to time, so I'll just be reading verses 1 through 13 and bring some thoughts and reflections upon this uh, beautiful passage. Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 13. Listen carefully, for this is the word of the Lord. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And the Lord, and now the Lord says, He who who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Verse 8, Thus says the Lord, In a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, Come out. To those who are in darkness, Appear. They shall feed along the ways, and all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by strings of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, These shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we, like the Israelites, are a needy people. We need comfort by your grace, the grace that can only come from above. We thank you for the grace that's profoundly in this word itself. Now, would you speak to us by your spirit? 
so that as we are comforted with your grace, we would have compassion on the afflicted. Ultimately, through your servant, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will the real servant stand up? For those of you familiar with a phrase like that, you might remember an old game show I used to watch back in the 70s. Yes, I was born prior to the 70s. Hard to believe, though, that may be. This particular game show was called Tell the Truth. And in this particular game show, four celebrity panelists were tasked with trying to figure out who among the three contestants were actually telling the truth. Some of you may remember. And so these three people will pretend, or at least two of the three people will pretend they're this particular contestant with a very unique occupation, like, for example, the fire chief of the fire department of Disneyland, which actually exists. So someone with this particular resume would come on the show, the game show host would uh, talk about his particular resume, and then the three contestants would then answer questions of the celebrity panelists. And at the end of the 20 minutes or so, the celebrity panelists will have to decide who is the true fire chief of Disneyland, for example. And then they say, will the real fire chief please stand up? And then after a little bit of hemming and hawing, finally one would stand up, much to the delight or dismay of not only these panelists, but also the studio audience. We read a passage like this, a wonderful passage filled with great promises, the promises of God to comfort a people undergoing tremendous oppression. Not only the oppression of God's people not caring for the, other, the others, but for the potential oppression that awaited them with exile in Assyria and Babylon. And yet in the midst of this darkness, there are these promises of light. This great servant of the Lord, the Ebed Yahweh, will arise, emerge, and come and comfort his people, provide redemption, salvation, the promises of God's blessing. So if you're like me, we read a passage like this. I don't know about you, there are times I feel like I'm in darkness, much to the dismay of the oppression of sin and sin all around my heart and around my life. And I need to be comforted by the grace of God once again and comforted by the promise of this servant who will help me. But who is this servant? Will the real servant please stand up? This passage here presents us with several problems. The meaning of the servant is not so clear. There are references to a kingly figure like David, to a corporate entity like Jacob or Israel, and even to the prophet Isaiah himself in chapter 20. And even a foreign king like Cyrus is mentioned as a servant-like figure who is used by God to restore God's people. It could very well be that the original hearers themselves had a difficult time discerning the meaning of this title, the Ebed Yahweh, the servant of the Lord. Is it a collective term, an individual term, Now remember, the the intent of these words, way back in chapter 40, told us that it's ultimately to comfort us. To comfort God's people in light of the impending exile that was prophesied. And so I believe a clear understanding of this servant would be crucial. And while I can't do justice to the entire text, 
and the themes that flow out of this. What I want to do is do really just ask two questions in our time, brief time together, and hopefully to ultimately comfort us and inspire us to have more compassion. First, I want to ask the question, what's the situation going on here behind this poet, poetic passage? And then who is a servant? Two simple questions. What's the situation and who is a servant? So let's ask these questions upon the text and see what it has to teach us. First, who, what's the situation? As you've been listening along in our faculty series, and for those of you familiar with the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah has been warning the people of God of the, of the impending danger posed by these foreign powers like Assyria and Babylon. Our faithful God, great is thy faithfulness, entered into a covenant with Israel, which meant either, as you know, in a covenant situation, either blessing or cursing. Blessings or curses, depending upon God's, uh, the people's faithfulness. But as you know, tragically, Israel was flirting with idols, and unfortunately, when challenges and obstacles arose, uh, arose in their own lives, rather than turning to their faithful, sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel, they trusted in other unrighteous foreign powers, not unlike us. They grew hard in their hearts, not only to God, but to others. They had no heart for justice and mercy for those in need, for those who have been oppressed, even among their own people. So they become hard to God, hard to others. And so these covenant-breaking people were in darkness and not being a light to the nations. They were called to be. They were privileged to be. Isaiah understood this very early on, even at the very beginning of his ministry. Remember his experience at his commissioning in chapter 6. I think it set the tone for the rest of his prophetic ministry. There before the throne of the Lord, Isaiah was spellbound and speechless as he heard the seraph sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so throughout his life, I believe Isaiah was overwhelmed by a sense of the sheer holiness of God. And in fact, this motif is emphasized as he uses his favorite designation for God, the Holy One of Israel, that we find here in verse 7, that he uses more than 12 times. When in the rest of the Old Testament, it is only used six times. Isaiah understood the holiness of God and the unholiness of God. Of God's people. Isaiah remembered that from the outset of Israel's election, her call was to be holy as I am holy. But Isaiah also recognized that this command was not realized in the life of Israel. For he lived among an unclean people who were calloused and without understanding, a people whose end would eventually be destruction and deportation. So this is the situation for Israel. Is it really that far off from our situation? In light of God's awesome, fearful, covenant holiness, what will happen to Israel? In this situation, can anyone rescue Jacob, who will redeem God's people from the wrath of God's holy protection and perfection? Excuse me, is there any hope for them or any of God's people? In their sin, 
Isaiah knew that God's holiness was the standard that could not be brushed aside. And that was the situation that we find here in verse or chapter 49. So we ask our second question then. If that's the situation, who is the servant? God's holiness also meant that God would be faithful. And that's the paradoxical truth of holiness, isn't it? God is holy. His standards are perfect. Even for himself. And so when God makes a promise, his holiness surrounds that promise. God will be faithful to his promises, ultimately in the servant. And so let's try to figure out who the servant is. Will the real servant stand up? I think there are two motifs or two themes that will help us narrow down who this servant really is. First, a redemption motif, and then secondly, a remnant motif. First, the redemption motif. Amazingly and paradoxically, because God is holy, God will not abandon Israel for another, but would save and redeem her. God is faithful and true to his promises. Indeed, Isaiah's name is Yahweh will save, or Yahweh is my salvation, would testify to this aspect of God's character. So who will save God's people? Ultimately, God himself will. Only he can. And there are several past, there are several words that reinforce this theme and motif in our passage today. Look at verse 7. The servant is called the Redeemer, or for you Hebrew scholars, the Goel, right? We should bring up images, the semantic domains of salvation and deliverance, as the familiar story of Ruth attests. Furthermore, in verses 6 and 8, Yeshua, or salvation, will be evidenced in the lives of God's people through the work of the servant. So just as Yahweh saved Israel, delivered Israel from the chains of Egypt, so the servant would redeem them from the bondage of Babylon and restore them to their inheritance, as verse 8 says. So instead of a blind and deaf nation, they will become a holy people. Instead of being held in bondage, they would become the redeemed of the Lord. Instead of being rejected, they would be sought after. All these things happen through the person and work of this servant of the Lord. That's the redemption motif. What about the remnant motif here? How will that help us understand who the servant is? Isaiah's presentation of redemption yields a problem of its own, of course, as I've hinted to earlier. How can a just God deliver and redeem Israel when she in her sin continues to be unsavable, undeliverable, unredeemable? Or how can holiness and judgment be reconciled with grace and promise? To answer this question, we turn to this motif in understanding the person and work of the servant, the remnant theme. As many of you know, in the Old Testament, a remnant or the remnant is a group of people who survive miraculously. Some sort of catastrophe brought about by God, usually in judgment for sin. This assembly of survivors. What a great word for the church, huh? An assembly of survivors. This assembly of survivors become the heart of a continuing people of God. And here in Isaiah, the remnant becomes the focal point of God's promises in Isaiah. So is the remnant the people of Israel? 
Or is it Israel? The person. Throughout Isaiah, this remnant motif relieves the theological tension or releases the tension as it joins together the holiness on the one hand and mercy on the other hand. For example, Israel is on the verge of destruction because of her sin and is thus compared to a stump of a felled tree in chapter 6. But Israel is also equated with a stump that will brout a new branch in chapter 4 and 11. Think about also the names of Isaiah's sons that testify to this remnant motif. In chapter 8, the first son is named quick to the plunder, haste to the spoil. While the second is named, in chapter 7, a remnant will return. Indeed, an aspect of the servant's work found in our chapter, verses 5 and 6, is to bring back and to gather those who are afar. And in this amazing passage, this includes not just Jacob and Israel, but even you and me, the Gentiles, for they too will receive salvation from the light of the servant. And so here we read about the servant filled with God's strength. The servant has the power to redeem and save the remnant. And this is the biblical pattern, isn't it? God works through the particular, be it Abraham, Israel, or the church, to reach the universal in the nations and the world. Here, interestingly and paradoxically, The servant embodies the remnant, faithfully representing God himself. So as we think about these threads, these motifs, hopefully forming a tapestry in our mind, picturing the servant of the Lord, I believe it's a little bit more recognizable. I think we can make at least these comments, can't we? There's no question that Isaiah does identify the servant with Israel, Jacob, in a collective sense. Not only do we see it here in verse 3, but at least five other chapters of Isaiah talk about this. But is that what Isaiah has in mind here? Perhaps the solution lies in these motifs of the remnant and and redemption. As a faithful remnant survives a period of judgment because of the mercy of God, Israel can be called, yes, a suffering servant. Yet you and I know that the servant points beyond Israel. In Isaiah 49, there's a distinction made between Israel as a nation and Israel as a faithful remnant. In fact, the servant found in our chapter is actually individualized, isn't he? He is born of a woman, comes distinctly from the nation. He will restore Jacob and bring back Israel. Furthermore, Israel was and is a nation beset with sin and rebellion and cannot suffer vicariously for herself let alone for the sins of the entire world. Only the righteous servant can bear this awful load. And so the individual servant steps in and stands up and will be for Israel, for the world, what Israel could never be. If it is an individual, could it be Hezekiah, Cyrus, or Isaiah himself? Unfortunately, we know that Hezekiah is unrighteous, who unselfishly sacrifices, who who selfishly does things for himself. But the true servant is a righteous king who unselfishly sacrifices for his people. What about Cyrus? He will accomplish God's will through military force, 
But the servant recorded here, the, his weapon is not war, but the word that comes out of his mouth. Cyrus may be able to restore the Israelites to Jerusalem by military power, but our servant will accomplish redemption at a greater level through the weapon of his life. What about Isaiah? The presence of the term Israel in verse 3 rules out the possibility of the individual being spoken of here is Isaiah himself. No prophet ever thought of himself as the ideal Israel. Clearly, the servant pictured here is not merely the nation or some ordinary individual. The tension is mounting, but I think you already know who the servant is, so let me just get to that. Friends, the Evid Yahweh is both Israel and has a mission to Israel. And like other New Testament writers, we can now turn the tapestry around to see how all the rich threads that Isaiah weaves for us unite into this harmonious picture. Friends, the New Testament writers saw that Yeshua Jesus has become a remnant of one, the true embodiment of faithful Israel, the truly righteous king and suffering servant, who, as it says in verse 8, is a covenant for his people. The Apostle Paul, after quoting Isaiah 49, 8, says that because of Jesus, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Friends without sin, the Goel Jesus would undergo judgment for sin, endure his exile, and experience restoration to new life as a nucleus of a new Israel, inheriting the promises of God afresh for a new people from all nations, including Korea. A new age has dawned, a new humanity has formed. Indeed, Jesus is the one who brings good news to the afflicted, binds up the brokenhearted, proclaims liberty to the captives and freedom for the prisoners, comforts all who mourn, calling his people oaks of righteousness. These words found in chapter 49 is reiterated in Luke chapter 4, fulfilled by Jesus Christ, the real servant, the true Ebed Yahweh, indeed the light of the world. And that's why Isaiah can break forth in such doxology in verse 13. So sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into sing singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Friends, this is our God. This is our Jesus. The creator of the world has become a servant. Indeed, the servant king. A servant king came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Indeed, God who made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we may, might become the righteousness of God. This is our redeemer, our remnant, our righteousness. And so friends, as we are comforted by this marvelous truth of our Goel servant king, as ambassadors of redemption and reconciliation, Friends, let us extend the servant's ministry of redemption and reconciliation to the ends of the earth. Let us reflect God's heart and bring the mercy and justice of the gospel of grace to the needy and to the oppressed. Let us extend the grace of God found only in our servant king, Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for these wonderful truths found in the book of Isaiah in chapter 49. 
And thank you how it reveals for us this wonderful message of our servant king who gave of himself so that we might be counted as part of his people. And so, Lord, Lord, as you have now adopted us, needy, pity people, let us extend the mercy of redemption and reconciliation and bring comfort and compassion to those who so desperately need this servant king. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California, 2019. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.